So we're starting this new series in James, and uh, we're starting it on September 11th. And it, uh, it occurred to me that uh, we need to talk about September 11th somehow. I'm sure that you haven't forgotten that today was the 10th anniversary uh, of a very tragic day in our nation's history. And uh, I don't know where you were on September 11th, 2001. Three of my five kids weren't even born yet. And uh, two of them are just, they were too young to even really remember what was going on. And I remember walking into my office there in Indianola at the church, and uh, I'd been in an early morning meeting, and I walked in, and, and I heard the radio going in the office, and I thought, that's really strange. Like, our secretary never listens to the radio, and especially like a, a news radio. And she quickly told me that a plane had hit the, uh, the World Trade Center, and I thought, oh, like a, a little Cessna ran into the World Trade Center or something, and and quickly we discovered it was much more, and much more than just one plane. There were four planes, and each with a specific target, and it was a horrific, not only day, it was a horrific week. And no doubt, you've had plenty of opportunity over this last week to really reflect on that moment in our nation's history. And as our country responded to that tragic event, it really brought us together. It bonded us as Americans. And if there was one enduring message that I think Americans wanted to spread during that time, it was, no matter what you throw at us, as a nation, we will persevere. We will endure. We will endure for the cause of freedom, for something that's greater than any one person. We will endure. Now, the cause of freedom is great. Don't get me wrong. It is. And we're grateful, so grateful to the men and women who have put themselves in harm's way for our freedom. It is a great cause. It's worthy of the many men and women who have given their lives for freedom. And as the citizens of this country, the United States of America, we take pride in in those who have done that for us. And as Christians, we need to remember that as much as American Christians are citizens of the United States of America— And as much as we're citizens of this great land, the truth is, we also belong to another kingdom. And this other kingdom gets our primary citizenship. Our citizenship isn't in any country in this world because that citizenship is temporary. Those of us who believe in Jesus belong to a different kingdom. Our citizenship right now is in the kingdom of heaven. And the goal of the kingdom of heaven is, is not freedom, but rather the glory of God. So on September 11th, in the face of trials, Americans rightly said, we won't give in, we will endure. That's a fitting introduction for the book of James. Because James is writing to the early church and he's communicating a similar message to them. But he says, he doesn't say it to citizens of any particular country. In fact, the citizens he's writing to are spread out over, the, over many countries and many lands. He's writing to the citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And the message is this. In the face of trials, endure. In the face of trials, persevere. That's the message of James and of these verses that we're going to look at today. And in so many ways, and it's so fitting We just came out of four weeks in the book of Ruth. And you remember those four weeks were continually looking at the providence and the goodness of God in the face of suffering and difficulty. And as we saw Naomi, 
had kind of written God off. She said, or God, she felt God had written her off. She felt that her life was over and God had abandoned her. And then the rest of the book of Ruth is about God showing this incredible love to Naomi in the face of really difficult trials. The first thing we read in the book of James, it's really a fitting transition from Ruth to James, because the very first thing we read in this letter that James wrote is about suffering. It's about persevering under suffering. The church was beginning in James' time to experience some pretty intense persecution. The church was suffering. Jewish leaders had been throwing Christians in jail. There was an economic persecution against Christians all over when they uh, Christian communities sprang up in a particular town, not just in Israel, but all over the known world. They tended to find economic hardship, persecution. They'd get fired from their jobs or no one would hire them or they'd be ostracized. And James is writing to this church, to Christians. And he says, in the face of trials, don't give up. Persevere. Now, who was James? James was the half-brother of Jesus. You'll remember James uh, and, and from Scripture. James is not to be confused with the Apostle James. The Apostle James was killed very early on in the book of Acts, if you look. And so he probably wasn't the author of this book. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And James wasn't a believer, the Scripture tells us, until after the resurrection. So all this time Jesus is going around and doing all these miracles and ministering, James, as Jesus' brother, went, I don't think so. This dude's my brother, right? I mean, can you imagine? The fact that James becomes a believer, I think, is one of the strongest evidences for the truth of Jesus. James calls his brother Lord Jesus. I have a brother. He's an older brother, just like James had an older brother in Jesus. You're not going to catch me referring to my brother as Lord Marcus. Lord Marcus Charles Brooks. I mean, you're just, it's just not going to happen. The fact that James believes and follows Jesus is one of the strongest testimonies. I imagine that when James came to understand the resurrection, understand that his brother had been risen from the dead, I imagine this scene like it's in a movie. Like there's this flashback, and all of a sudden James takes into account all these experiences he had in his life with Jesus. The things he could never explain or never seem to make sense. And all of a sudden he went, oh, aha. Like it all flashed before his eyes. He got it. James eventually becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem, the, the most influential of all the, the Christian churches in the early day, the, the, the head of the church of Jerusalem. And though he was an apostle, James was a very important person. James, at some point, there's dispute about how this letter was created. Scholars differ. Some scholars think that it was a lot of teachings of James that somebody at some point compiled together and sent out in a letter. Some people think that it's James' thoughts that he just wrote down all at once. I, I tend to lead towards the, the idea that these were thoughts that James had all at one time because he wanted to send them out. But uh, regardless, these are still the words of James. And James has an important audience here. He says in verse 1, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. James is right. He uses this Jewish language of 12 tribes to describe the church. 
You have to remember, if you go back in your Bible history to the time when the, the northern ten tribes of Israel were sent into exile by Assyria, Assyria scattered Jews throughout the known world. And so hundreds of years earlier, Jews had this become as, known as the diaspora, the spreading out of the Jews all over the known world. And Jews tended to, a lot of them kept their religion and their identity as Jews, and they formed little communities, little pockets. James is lopping on to this language that they used for these kind of Jewish people, and now he's applying it to Christians. The interesting thing about the book of James, when you read through this, is sometimes it, it, it's kind of like li- reading the book of Proverbs. Some people call James the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because James is very cyclical in his discussion. He'll dis- discuss a topic— and then he'll leave it, and then he'll come back to it, and then he'll discuss it again, and then he'll leave it, and he'll come back to it. And, th- and sometimes it looks like a smattering of thoughts and ideas that James has put together, but it's not. This is, there's a cyclical, repetitive pattern, and it's the reason why I'm preaching James verses 1 through 4 and verses 12 to 18 today, because I think that's part of one repeated pattern that James is doing. The book of James was written very early, before the writings of Paul. James has written this, and a lot of people think that this is probably the earliest New Testament letter that we have, or the earliest writing. And so James is trying to instruct these early Christians on how to live like Jesus. Most of these concepts in James can be traced back to the Sermon on the Mount. It's almost as James went, okay, my, my brother Jesus taught us a lot of things, which now that I believe he's God, I'm going to go back and pay some attention to. And so he's saying, okay, if this is the way Jesus taught us to live, what does that look like for Christians who are suffering? What does that look like for Christians who need to persevere? What does this look like for just any Christian anywhere? How do we live out the teachings of Jesus? And so that's what James is going to do here. We're going to spend the next in all, this series is going to take us up to Christmas, basically. And we're going to spend this time, we're going to be saying, listen, how do we practically live out the teachings of Jesus? James is all practical theology. Unlike Paul, when we read one of Paul's letters, Paul always gives us like conceptual theology up front. He's teaching us something like, like uh, in Colossians. He teaches us about the deity of Christ. And we get Colossians 1, this chunk of this, this importance of the deity of Christ. And then the rest of the thing is application. Like, how does this apply to our lives? James just jumps right in. He's like, okay, here's what you need to know to live out the teachings of Jesus. And that sounds pretty applicable in today's world. In the midst of trials, no matter what kind— there is a temptation on our part to give up, just like it would be for the Christians in the first century. There is a temptation to go, I'm tired. I'm tired of suffering. I'm tired of trials. I quit. But James urges us to persevere. So I want to talk about three ways that James encourages us to, to persevere. It's like a how-to sermon. How, how, how to persevere in trials. James gives us three thoughts from, from this text. The first thing he lets us know that he wants us to do as believers is to persevere in our perspective. You see, when trials come, he says, don't go up. Don't give up. Persevere in your perspective because we remember that there's a bigger picture to our trial than we can see. 
Okay, if you're confused on this point of this bigger picture thing, you've got to go back and listen to the entire series of Ruth because we spent the entire month of August talking about how Naomi couldn't see the big picture of what God was doing. And even the author of Ruth couldn't see the biggest picture of what God was doing in in working things towards the birth of our Savior, Jesus. And so in, in the midst of trials, we always need to maintain perspective. So look what the first thing that James tells us. Verse 2. James tells us, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Consider it pure joy. What's joy? I think one easy way to look at this is joy is an outward expression of an inward reality. Much has been made about the difference between happiness and joy. A lot of people talk about, oh, well, I'm not happy about this, but I'm going to maintain joy. And, and I think there's some merit. But I think we miss sometimes in Scripture that happiness and joy are more related than we think. Joy is this outward expression of an inward reality. Happiness is outward only, I think. Happiness is shallow. Joy is deep. Joy, similar, joy and Happiness are similar. Joy just has deeper roots. All right, let, let's take, for instance, <clears throat> obligatory Cubs reference. The Cubs might win a game, right? It does happen from time to time. Uh, I can get really happy about that one game that they won, but my happiness isn't rooted because I know the truth, that the truth is the next day, Carlos Marmol will probably go out and give up his third walk-off grand slam of the year. I mean, I just realized that this is probably what's going to happen. There's, a, there's sort of no root to the happiness. Joy has its roots in something deeper than that. Joy has its roots in Jesus. Now look at the next word here. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. What does James mean by trials? Well, trials are this. An unwelcomed, unanticipated experience. That's a description of what trials are. They're unwelcome. You don't want them. You didn't see it coming. That's a trial. I wasn't ready for it, we say. I didn't sign up for it. It's a trial. It's my mom's kidney cancer. It was my wife's extreme illness when she got pregnant. It's all the workers in our adopted country in the Middle East having to suddenly leave because of the political turmoil. It's the friend who turns their back on you. Maybe it's for you, it's the you were employed one day and the next day you're not. It's the unwelcomed, unanticipated experience. This word trial, Jesus used this word. When Jesus was telling the story of the Good Samaritan, this illustration, you know the story of the Good Samaritan. The Jewish man was walking on a road, he was on a journey and he got mugged by thieves and all these Good religious people passed him by, but the Samaritan who he despised and hated and should have despised and hated him, he was the one to help him. Remember this story? Jesus used this word when he talked about this story. He says, this man went on a journey and he fell into the hands of robbers. Same word, an unexpected trial. He wasn't looking to get robbed. He didn't go out and go, you know what, today I'm going to go on the road and maybe I can find someone to mug me. <laughs> It was unexpected, unanticipated. 
And there are two types of trials. This word means the same thing. There's an external trial and an internal trial. James deals with the external trial first. Trials that come from outside of you, not from inside of you. Now, James says to this, he says, as we're looking through this, he says, whenever you consider trials of many kinds, a trial is anything. There's all kinds of trials in our life. It's the phone call in the middle of the night when you learn of the unexpeakable. Trials of many kind, maybe it's simply your mother-in-law. I don't know. The trials of many kinds. So you put these two concepts together, and James tells us something that seems really ridiculous. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Are you serious? Consider it, what are you talking about? Who is happy about trials? Who's joyous about trials? Is James crazy? When we think about this, I get two pictures in my mind uh, of, of joy and trials, you know, like, and this is a crazy concept, right? The first picture I get in my mind is a guy strapped into a torture chair. And as the torturer takes out his instruments of evil and pain, the guy in the chair, in the chair, smiles, and he says, I love this. This makes me so happy. Hurt me again, please. The second second thing that comes into my mind was my son Nicholas when he was a young boy. When Nicholas was probably five or six years old, Nicholas has always been a big kid. I call him my gentle giant. And and, uh, when he was a a little kid, he had done something that deserved a spanking. And so I sat him down, and and I sat him on the bed, and I went to give him a spanking. And... uh, I was kind of afraid, you know, I've always used my hand because I didn't want to hit him too hard. I wanted to hit him hard enough that got the point, but not hard enough to really hurt him. And so I laid into him and I spanked him and he turns up and he looks at me and he gets this huge smile on his face and he goes, that didn't hurt. (laughs) I remedied that problem. Okay. The next time, I'm not kidding you, the next time I spanked him, same situation, same thoughts are going to my mind. I spanked him. I knew I didn't spank him hard enough. He looks at me, he goes, <sighs> like, <laughs> smart kid, right? Learning his lesson. Why would anyone find a joy in the midst of a trial? Well, look at verse three and four. Here's why we can have joy in the midst of a trial. Because you know, that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be, be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You don't find joy in the trial itself. You and I find joy because the, of the inevitable result of the trial. I, I, let me put this word picture up here with arrows here for you. See, James tells us that trials result in perseverance. Perseverance results in completeness. So we take joy in the fact that we know that a trial will inevitably strengthen our faith and make us more like Jesus. Perseverance results in completeness. I love this word, complete. It's like we can take joy in the midst of the trial because we know God is transforming us and making us perfectly more like Jesus. No one rejoices in staying like a baby, do they? I mean, no one goes, I'm so excited because I haven't changed a bit since I was eight years old. Eight years old, right? We know people like this, right? The 30-year-old that still acts like they're eight. 
Nobody takes joy in, in remaining as an eight-year-old. When people say to me, Dave, you have a, a sense of humor that reminds me of a junior hire, right? When they say, they don't mean that as a compliment. No one takes joy in remaining as a child. And we can take joy in the fact that we know trials develop perseverance. Perseverance makes us more like Jesus. So we skip to verse 12 now, all right? Hang in here. Paul's going to, or James is going to finish his thought here in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God had promised to those who loved him. Those who love him. There's this crown of life, this crown of honor. A crown is an honored thing. The crown is not the Burger King crown, right? I mean, this crown is actually an honored crown. The point is not endure trials, because if you don't, you're not going to go to heaven. That's not the point. The point is, rather, that there is an honored reward waiting for you and me for persevering, both in, in this world and the world to come. I, I wish Peg Gutschel were here today, Tim, because uh, Peg's always telling me, it's Dave, it's about rewards. It's about rewards. You know, I mean, I, I love Peg. She gets so excited about it because it's like not about our salvation that's at stake here in this passage, but God, this is about the rewards for things we do. So persevere. Did you know that you've got crowns waiting for you? For Like your behavior in this life actually matters. So many times as Christians, we just throw up our hands and go, oh, well, Jesus paid it all, and that's great, so I don't have to do anything on my vacation now until I go to heaven, and it really matters. And we just totally miss the point. James talks us and points us to this crown of life. When trials come, don't give up. Persevere in perspective. See what God is doing. Take joy in how he's working and making us more like Christ. And if you were to put the next slide down, I mean, there you see trials work towards perseverance, which works towards completeness, which results in reward. Persevere in perspective. Second thing you need to know today is that you need to persevere in righteousness. First of all, we persevere in perspective. We remember that there's joy in this because God is doing something in our life. Secondly, we, we persevere in righteousness. Don't let trials become an excuse to sin. If you know me very well, you know that there have been many, 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 many times in my life where I've sworn off Coca-Cola. Uh, you know, gen generally uh, Coca-Cola comes up somewhere in your life, uh, not in my life. I, I love Coca-Cola. I think it's a nectar. It's an amazing beverage. And <laughs> I'm, I'm just wanting one right now, actually. Um, I, I just love Coca-Cola, but you know, soon, some, at some point it gets ridiculous, the amounts I'm consuming. And so I decide the best way to do this is to cut off Coca-Cola. And as soon as I do that, as soon as I, you know, decide to uh, cut out Coca-Cola from my life, Coca-Cola is everywhere. It's everywhere. I, I'm walking around and there's a billboard for Coke. And then it's like every friend in my life is now drinking a Coca-Cola right in front of me. And, and, and I just, I crave it. I desire it more and more. Come and go, puts their Coke on sale, you know? And here's the thing. I can say to myself, Dave, what are you doing? You know, clearly this is a sign that you're not supposed to persevere in this trial. 
you know? And I can blame, I can blame God, I guess. I can blame all my friends. I can blame Coca-Cola for producing such an amazing drink. I mean, I can blame a lot of people. And then I can go out and in my mind, think about this is everybody else's fault. And I can go out and get a two liter and consume the whole thing in about 10 minutes. All right. I can do that. Or I can stick to my guns. I can persevere. The word trial in verse 2 is closely related to the verse, the word temptation in chapter, in verse 13. So these words have similar roots. They're like, they're very closely related. Trial and temptation. We tend to separate those words and think a trial and a temptation, but they're very closely related. Here's the point. If trials are outward and temptation is inward, outward trial shouldn't be an excuse for inward sin. Outward trials shouldn't be an excuse for inward sin. The truth is when life is going hard, when life is difficult, you and I tend to quit. We tend to just give up. We're like, you know what? God doesn't care about me, so why should I be worry about living for him? Or I just don't have the energy to say no to sin anymore. We just sort of let ourselves go on the inside. And this is why James takes a moment to remind us where the origins of inner temptation. Where does inner temptation come from? Look at verse 13. He reminds us. He says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, so the first thing, James wants us to know that temptation does not begin with God. Because God, he can't be tempted. No one can tempt God. Nor can he tempt anyone. When you stop and you have that inner temptation to give in to whatever struggle you have, whatever struggle, whatever thing you're fighting at in your life, that is not God. James is very quick to tell us that. That is not God. So, so trials, this inner temptation, it doesn't originate from God. It comes from you. We like to blame Satan for temptation. Satan can bring outward trials. Temptation... That's of our own doing. When outward trials come, inward temptation tends to build. Look at verse 14. Each one of us is tempted when by his own desire, his own evil desire rather, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. What we really want those inner desires, they lure and bait us. They're, they do both things. They bait us and then they, they drag us in. A thought comes to our mind. Excuses build. I'm too tired. I deserve a break. Someone's not meeting my needs, so I can go out and commit this sin, do this thing I know is wrong. Life's hard. I just don't care anymore. When we start to play those excuses, when we give in to our desires from that, sin is born, James tells us. And the result of sin is death. Okay, I love this. If you write in your Bible, write, write this in your Bible. Circle the word full grown in verse 15. When, when it is full grown, and then look back at verse 4 and see the word complete. 
So James says that perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature, complete. So on the positive side, trials help us to persevere, and persevere brings completeness, Christ-likeness. Okay, this word now in verse 15, sin when it is full grown, that's the perfect antithesis of the word complete. That, that word full grown has to do with this idea. It, it's it's the, the dark mirror image of completeness. Perseverance in trial brings completeness in Christ. Caving to inner temptation brings completeness in death. When trials come, don't give up. Persevere in righteousness. Lastly, persevere because of God's goodness. When trials come, we can persevere because we believe ultimately in the goodness of God's character and who he is. God is the giver of good gifts. Did you know that every gift you've ever been given that's good and right, that came from God. That ultimately came from God. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Every gift that comes from God. Okay, so watch this. We maintain perspective and we persevere in righteousness, right? So when we maintain perspective, we maintain joy, and we persevere in righteousness, we can see every trial as a gift from God. Not because we're the guy in the torture chamber <laughs> that just loves being abused. No, not at all. We're not crazy. We love the God who is going to use that to work his completeness in us. So we face an outward trial we persevere. We don't give up on righteousness and say, I'm just tired of this whole thing. We persevere because we maintain perspective because we know ultimately God is doing something good and right through this. Remember, everything James writes here, I really believe is a teaching of Jesus somewhere. So look how this worked out in Jesus' life. Okay? First of all, we remember in the midst of suffering and let's face it, Jesus suffered in a way that you can't, and I can't even imagine. In the midst of that suffering, he maintained a joyous perspective. He cared more about the will of God than anything else. And he saw that humanity's redemption was at stake. So Jesus, when he was going to the cross, he maintained a perspective ultimately on what God was doing. It was for the good of humanity, the redemption. He maintained perspective. Watch this. Jesus also experienced temptation. You know, we have, Jesus had these two natures. He had his divine nature and his human nature. He had two that were equally present in him without mixing or dividing. <laughs> Theologians love to use those language that could just confuse everyone, right? He has these two natures, and the human part of Jesus experienced real temptation. And so when Satan tempted him in the wilderness, you remember this story, when Jesus was out there and he was being tempted. This was not from his fallen human nature. He was not running from temptation because Jesus didn't have a fallen human nature. He had a perfect human nature. 
Jesus' temptation was directly from Satan. But as hard as it was, Jesus persevered in righteousness. He trusted that God's righteous way was better. Jesus persevered in perspective. He persevered in righteousness. And thirdly, he persevered because he received a crown of glory. The crown as the king of the universe. One last hint in this passage is in verse 18. James is just trying his best to direct us and think of Jesus when we're reading this. Verse 18, James says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. It makes us think of John who would write later on, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God. The word was God. James is pointing us that the Father's good gift ultimately to you and I is Jesus. He is the good gift to us. Don't miss this. We persevere. And the good gift. Jesus enables us to persevere. He enables us to persevere in perspective and righteousness. He enables us to persevere for rewards. The ultimate good gift is Jesus. Let me close with this story. Um, you get two Cubs references today for the price of one. All right. Um, in 2005, in the midst of probably another dismal year, uh, the Cubs called up this uh, outfielder by the name of Adam Greenberg. Adam Greenberg had been coming up in the, through the minor league system, and uh, his first day in the big leagues in, that in July, he sat because he was facing Dontrell Willis of the Florida Marlins, Don chose a lefty. Dusty Baker didn't want him facing a lefty. So the next day, second day he was on the team, he gets a pinch hit at bat in the ninth inning. He goes up to bat for his very first major league at bat. He was facing a pitcher named Valerio de los Santos. Valerio de los Santos unleashes a 92-mile-an-hour fastball that gets away from him. It smashes into the back of Adam Greenberg's helmet. It shatters his helmet and throws him to the ground. In his very first pitch that he ever saw in Major League Baseball. Uh, De Los Santos was later interviewed about it. He thought he had killed him. He thought this kid was going to die. He laid on the ground in agonies. The trainer got him. They pulled him out of the game. They put in a pinch runner for him. To this day, he's never seen another major league pitch. He couldn't stand up for weeks. If he would move, he would get nauseous and vomit. He had to sleep in a vertical position because his concussion and head trauma was so severe. No one ever thought he would ever play baseball again. Yet, he persevered. He stuck with the game. He bounced around from minor league team to minor league team, got back in, in the game of, of baseball, has net, but over five years, six years now, he has never made it back to the major leagues. One pitch. He's only one of two major league baseball players ever that have only seen one pitch. That's all I saw. You think that's a tragic story. But this year, Adam Greenberg didn't give up. 
He ended up playing in uh, an independent baseball league for the Bridgeport Bluefish. He gets up to bat on a given day, just like normal. He's been playing for a while now. Guess who he faces in this independent league? Valerio de los Santos. And he got a single. (laughs) He said afterwards that that was just this huge moment for him to face the guy that had pretty much ended his career. Now, you may think, well, that's a stinky story. He never made it back to the major leagues. Well, if you think that, you missed the point. The point is that the journey transformed Adam Greenberg into something different, a different kind of player, a different person, a player who could persevere. See, what you and I are tempted to think, okay, if I encounter this trial, this thing, and I just persevere and hang in there, at the end of it, God is going to give me everything I want, and my life will just be peachy, hunky-dory, peachy keen, everything the way I want it. And we miss the point. Because the point is really not if I just persevere in the hard time, I'll get everything I want. The, pers- the point is that if we persevere through the hard times, we will become more like Jesus. Which should be our goal. Becoming more like him. That's what joy is truly all about. It's about a radical shift in our understanding that our goal in life is not to have everything just easy and nice and everything works out the way we want and we got a nice house and 2.5 kids and a dog and a cat and life and a three-car garage and vehicles that work. (laughs) Maybe have leather seats even. I mean, and we just go through life and we have success at work and all is good. And if bad times come, I'll just hang in there because then I'll get back to the track of everything being right and good in my life. And that's not the point. We need to shift our goal and shift our thinking to think what true joy is, which is becoming more like Jesus and less like us. That's what transformation is. That's why James can say this crazy, ridiculous statement. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. That's why he can say it. Let's pray. God, um, we love you. Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to be successful in Christ's likeness. We want you to change us. We want to be on your team. Put us in the game. God, we want to be like you. And so do that in our hearts and in our lives. And let us find joy whatever we face. Because we can become more like Jesus. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.